from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School. That's University of Pennsylvania, Huntsman Hall, the Sirius XM Business Radio Studio, looking out on the famed and beautiful Locust Walk on a, a perfectly appropriate, finally perfectly appropriate fall morning. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Shane Jensen. Good morning, hey, Shane. Hey, hey, how's it going? Good. Real fine, real fine. We, we, we're missing our two collaborators, Eric and Adi. They are out doing Eric and Adi things, but they... We'll be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning to talk sports analytics, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time now, depressingly. But we're here. You can join us. Give us a shout. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Open lines, especially for the next half hour and the last half hour. Give us a ring. You got something to say or ask? Give us a ring. You can also do that by email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We take those emails live. We have responded live, real time, on the radio. You can do it if you're phone shy and would rather write. Do that. Great way to reach us if you're listening when we're replayed. We're replayed four to five times. Four to five, that is, not 45. This is not an all-day, everyday Wharton Moneyball channel. But we are replayed. We're building towards that, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel like it, there's a groundswell of support I, for, for, for us branching out on our own. Ground, <laughs> groundswell. <laughs> yes, it is that. You can also follow us on Twitter, at WMoneyball is our handle out there, at WMoneyball on Twitter, if you'd like. We have our usual collection of guests. We have one at the bottom of the hour and another at the top of the next hour, but we are Open lines and open discussion for the next half hour. Shane Jensen, what in the world of sports has caught your eye? I actually, we do have something that yeah, we know. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, obviously the tragic event yesterday was kind of what I was been thinking about the last 24 hours or so. Former or Major League hours. pitcher, famed Major League pitcher, sure Hall of Fame pitcher, and Phillies pitcher passed away yesterday in an accident in the Gulf of Mexico in a plane accident in the Gulf of Mexico. So we thought it'd be appropriate to start with uh, Roy Halladay and uh, and a a memory, quickly, um, about one of Halladay's top performances. Just about a quarter to eight, October the 6th, 2010, the first postseason game for Roy Halladay. He winds the 0-2, swing and a dribbler out in front of the plate. Ruiz out to get it. The throw from his knees. It's in time, and it's a no-hitter. Unbelievable. Ruiz and Halliday embrace, and the Phillies again celebrate around Roy Halliday. Four nothing. It's the second no hitter in Major League postseason history here tonight at Citizens Bank Park. The Phillies dug out empties. As they celebrate another brilliant performance from Roy Halladay, the fireworks are going. Man, he was a good pitcher. Oh my goodness! Tell us, tell us a little bit about that, Shane. I've, I've heard it said that while you know, kind of in the meat of his career, he was arguably the top pitcher in the league. Yeah, I mean, for many uh, of his years. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's right. I, I and I think he. I mean, I think he's 
there's very few pitchers that have won a Cy Young in in both leagues. Actually, mm-hmm. so he 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 toiled away in Toronto, and he un- unfortunately he toiled away on some relatively bad teams right. in Toronto for the first part of his career. And, and in fact, although obviously around here. Everybody associates him with the Phillies. I kind of grew up right. watching him on on the Blue Jays, and he was unbelievable. I mean, it, it, basically, the the Blue Jays won at least a fifth of their games because of Roy Halladay. Um, and yeah, he was he was unbelievable. I think what, it was something what, like a six time All Star just in Toronto. What do you think made him so unbelievable as a pitcher? Well, I mean, I mean, uh, I I don't know. I mean, he he seemed like pretty much. Um, you know that kind of stress, or I mean, and I say this like it's unique. Obviously, a lot of major league baseball, all major league baseball pitchers deal with stress and like you know, kind of high leverage situations. It just seemed to wash like right through him. It's like he was out there pitching, <laughs> and and it didn't really matter what the situa- game situation was. He could <laughs> be behind by four, unlikely, but he could be behind by four. He could be up by ten. You know, it could be the playoffs. Mm-hmm. It could be you know the regular season, and and it just. He was just nonplussed by it all. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, mentally he seemed like, I mean, and of course I don't know, but he seemed like, like he just had this like kind of composure and just sort of like, you know, work at kind of work ethic that like, you know, transcended basically the situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and some of that seems different than today's game. He, he's known for complete games, for example. Yeah. No, I mean, he was also incredibly efficient. You know, I mean, he um, easier he, to throw a complete game when you're throwing fewer pitches. Yeah, and I mean, I think if I remember, I mean, I think he he, I always remember him as this guy that always got the ground ball when he needed it. You know, I mean, if a guy got on base, well, that was just setting up a double play. <laughs> you know, and uh, so he was. I mean, obviously, the fact that he threw so many complete games. I mean, I think even today, even Roy Hallett, the game has changed so dramatically. I think in say the last like. 10 years even of of kind of like in terms of strategy and how we treat uh, how how starting pitchers are treated i bet you that today's version of roy halliday would not have nearly as many complete games i mean mm-hmm. not you know just because they don't they don't use starting pitchers that way anymore um and i mean he did you know have a i, I guess in retrospect i mean he had a relatively long career but it, you know he only p- pitched until he was 35 or 36 it could be that there were a lot of miles on him because of you know all those complete games early right. on who right. knows? Right. But. So I, we Eric is really the Hall of Fame guy, but we we often talk about. You yeah, know, and I think I, I, right, and I mean, I, I would, it would be interesting to hear what Eric would have to say about Roy Halladay. I think he was on the margins of the Hall of Fame. I mean, he mm-hmm. did again, just in terms. I mean, certainly in terms of peak, he was a dominant pitcher and and one of the best pitchers in the game. Um, during his entire career, but his career was shorter. I mean, he didn't accumulate those sort of totals that we were used to seeing with the Hall of Fame, but who knows what we're used to seeing anymore, right? I mean, you know, yeah, he, I didn't... Era-adjusted, it might Yeah, it, it, he didn't come anywhere near 300 wins, but, I mean, who is from here on out, right? Yeah. So. He, did have, he did have something like the 19th all-time highest win percentage. Yeah, so, yeah, so, and that's with Oh my goodness! Yeah, with the Jays, with most yeah. of the Jays. I didn't. I mean, he was on some real powerhouse Philly teams. I assumed he padded that stat like later on in his career. But well, it sounds like he deserved it. But the the I didn't realize that there had only been two no hitters in postseason history. That's just a little yeah. Darn Larson, I think, was the other one, right? In the well, World everyone Series. knows Larson because yeah. it was not only a no hitter; it was a perfect game, right. right? So you think of that, and really, the only other no hitter. And, well, and, and interestingly enough, that same season that he threw that no hitter in the playoffs, he had a perfect game earlier in that season. Is that right? Yeah, I mean that. How many perfect games have been thrown for a while? It was like high twenties or something, right? It's not that many. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's. Um... So Halliday has one of the perfect games. Yeah. Oh goodness. 
That's a that's a big a one. perfect game and a playoff no hitter. And same one of the season. only two playoff no hitters yeah, in the same season. Yeah, insane. And I mean that was I mean that that team was just I mean it was not actually the team that went on to win the World Series, uh, but that team was uh it would it, the, the pitching staff for that team was unbelievable. It was it was Cliff Lee, Roy Halladay, Cole Hamels, and Roy Oswalt. How far the Phillies have fallen? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean they they definitely. Um, they 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 took a win it now strategy, um, and 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 then and, and, and they did deliver it. Did they... That's right. So I just heard this. So real quickly, by the way, yeah. there's there've been 23 perfect games yeah. in baseball history. So even fewer than I thought, and he has one of them. That's remarkable. Um, let's let's talk about baseball baseball more broadly now. And and speaking of win now, yeah. I happen to have run across the information that that, that the Cubs farm league system. Farm system may not be that highly regarded right now because mm. they've made so many trades recently away. Some of their prospects they sent some yeah. of their prospects away with a little bit more of a win now. Yeah, and it just it just makes very plain this tension between the strategy that the Astros have taken over years, and then at some point you're like you're close and you want to increase the odds a little bit, so you ship some of those prospects for a win now possibility. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's got to be such a delicate balance. It's got to be so hard to kind of hit that sweet spot of, yeah. you know, maintaining, you know, kind of a, a stream of talent for like many years, especially in baseball where it is sort of, you know, maybe or maybe, it, maybe it's easier in baseball because you have so many years to develop people and you can kind of adjust, on, you know, as you go. I don't know, but I mean, it must be very hard to sit that hit that sweet spot of of develop you know having really good major league you know really good major league team but still have these kind of guys coming up i mean the yankees somehow have accomplished it i mean maybe the yankees accomplished it in part because they were coming off these years where they had like you know these giant kind of mercenary free agent teams and in letting all those free agents you go they accumulated a bunch of draft picks and that's how where they are now so they kind of went you the know? opposite direction. Yeah, they shipped high talent win now guys for prospects. Yeah, I mean slowly picks. and surely. Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean you know Beltran goes. You know you get a, you get a draft pick because of that. Somebody else leads. You get a draft pick because of that. Uh-huh. You know, and, and they've also been very good. I mean, this is not to take away from. I mean, I, I think Brian. I think we're seeing now kind of a a renew a, like an extra level of respect for what Brian Cashman is able to do as a general manager. Because for me, I mean, he's obviously been the general manager for the Yankees for decades now. Um, but you know, we all, you know, 10 years ago when somebody would ask me or somebody else about Brian Cashman, be like, well, yeah, I mean, the Yankees do well, he's clearly not a bad manager, but I mean, they, they also have this gigantic payroll. So isn't it just, you know, maybe he, you know, he, he knows how to spend money, but he's got all the money in the world to spend. Right. Whereas now when they've kind of are at least taking seemingly a little bit more of a budget view, you know, strategy, we're kind of seeing that obviously under his, you know, under his regime, you know, they've really developed this incredible pharma system, and now they have this young team. I mean, I, I hate to say it, they're really good and they're really young. <laughs> it's going to kind of, it's going to be a bummer to watch them over the next few years, to be honest, as Red Sox fan. Though the Red Sox also have a pretty young, good team, so yeah, I really shouldn't complain. Okay, so, but hold on. I'm a little chagrined that here we are, you know, within a week of the Astros winning the World Series, and we're talking about the friggin' AL East. No, no, okay, so, no, I, I mean, they... 
you know, the Astros, I mean, if we want to talk scary, young, good teams, the Astros yeah. are, like, unbelievable. I mean, those guys just won the World Series. Did you enjoy it? Did you watch it? Had yeah. you, what, was your, what was your experience of the Astros? Because they are one of the most analytic-savvy, decision-making, you know, decision-science-forward teams Yes, no, and I mean, like, to a certain extent, I, I mean, you know, I, I didn't have a strong rooting interest in the World Series, but that was kind of what I rooted based on, is I know some of the people that within the Astros organization. sat next to Jeff Luno yeah, just a few months ago you know, and, and I talked mean, with him obviously, for half an hour? And and he 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 was kind of you know the embodiment of what you would want a general manager to be as far as kind of you know uh, taking like a strong analytics influence within his organization, but you know being very cognizant of how you have to communicate that and how you have to get buy in from all people in the organization for it. I mean, it was fantastic, and I mean clearly you know there 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 is some evidence that that's the right strategy as well. So uh, did, did what what jumped out? I mean, what. Did you stay up late for the games? Was yeah. there anything in particular that really stayed with you about the series? Um, well, the balls are juiced. <laughs> I feel like I've said you, that before. You, I mean, yeah, so obviously the balls are you've juiced. You've been on about that before. That's a thing. Uh-huh. That's, that, so I mean, clearly whether, is happening. Whether or not they're juiced, I, I talked, I talked yeah. to a, a guy in the, in the league in the last week, and he said that the, you know, the seams are clearly lower for the playoffs yeah. and then there was a different tackiness to the ball yeah. in the in the not only just the I mean playoffs, Verlander but, was talking about how he couldn't even sign the balls like the pen wasn't <laughs> stay, sticking to him and stuff I mean okay I mean we can you know we could or, or we can just believe the major league baseball because they never you know lie about anything you know so yeah no the balls are due so that's the first thing that sent out I also took a delight only because I remember a few years ago when we were talking about what it takes to win the playoffs. And at the time, we were watching the Kansas City Royals go through everybody. And we're like, oh, well, clearly what it takes to win the playoffs is middle relief. <laughs> right. You know, strong relief pitching will win in the playoffs. Um, and, you know, maybe because the ball's juice or whatever. Here's a, here's a World Series where nobody could relief pitch. It was just basically whoever batted last, essentially, whoever whoever had that last home run won the game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, it, it kind of delighted me that I could, because I knew that narrative was BS two or three years ago. It's just, it was hard to argue then because we were watching something that agreed with that narrative. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it turns out the real, the true narrative, I think, is that you can win in the playoffs in a whole host of different ways. Right, right. Um, it's less compelling, it's, less compelling story. It Shane. is a less compelling story. So the guys at 538 ran an analysis. I think they just put this up yesterday or so. No, a few, a few, a few days ago. So Dan Levitt and Neil Payne ran an analysis on which team's future is brightest, Astros or Dodgers. And yeah. the thing is you're really, really cutting it fine there because those are the two teams with, according to their numbers, the brightest future. So they, 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 they Interesting. It was a little bit – it wasn't farm system based. It was based on how they played this year essentially mm-hmm. and then – Something about their roster. So breaking down the 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 pitchers, so their wars, their yeah. average replacement over their average, and doing some kind wins of above trajectory into the future, exactly based on age. Yeah. So the and 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 they're and they're this weighing, is the way you should do it, certainly. So for example, the the hitting side of the equation matters more than the pitching side. That's interesting. Um, and if you crunch these numbers, it looks like Dodgers edge them out with a forecast of ninety wins per season going forward. I assume that's just into next year. No, it's a five-year. It's a five-year projection. So, this so is, they're averaging ninety wins over the next five years. That's what the model says. Wow. So yeah, it's a pretty pretty strong. That's <laughs> that's, that's that's why they lead. Yeah. It, but there's another club in there, an Indian sneaking there. Yeah. Above the Astros, well, the Indians. Were, I mean, we. It's it's hard. Uh, you know. I mean, 
again, they they they, they fell victim to the coin flipness of the playoffs. Yeah. But the Indians were obviously an incredible team this year. I mean, they won like over twenty some plus games in a row. Mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah, no, it's. Yeah, you were right to to chastise me for for going right to the AL East when starting to discuss baseball because that's not where the power center of baseball is anymore. I mean, the boss, Red Sox and Yankees are still great teams, um, but yeah, there's so much exciting stuff happening. The Astros out west, the Indians in the central, the Dodgers obviously in the west and the NL. I mean, the Nationals aren't going anywhere. The Cubs are still good. I mean, there's a lot of really good teams out there. And to be fair, what those guys came up with put the Yankees at number five mm-hmm. and the Red Sox at number seven. Right. And so yeah. they're, they're not far behind. But the the four teams in the last two World Series, Dodgers, Indians, Astros, Cubs, are still right. forecast. What, are the, what are the worst, actually? The bottom of that list? Yeah. From the bottom. Yeah. Tigers, Giants, Blue Jays, and Mets. So that's a little disconcerting to see the Tigers on the bottom. And the reason... It's disconcerting as a Red Sox fan. Is I assume part of the reason that the Tigers are on the bottom is they spent eight nine years trading away their farm system for you know kind of win now, and they did you I know see. almost yeah. make it to the World Series a couple of years. I mean they did get to the playoffs. They they were on the cusp, but they were in the World Series. In, in fact, they you know they were successful, but they really kind of blew through their entire farm system to do that. Yeah. Who actually was the orchestrator of that whole strategy? Uh-oh. Dave Dombrowski, who's now the general manager of the Red Sox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just it doesn't mean it's going to happen again. You know, he's not the only person I, I, making decisions. I just think but that's I a just, very interesting tension that I've not yeah. seen analyzed. Like big picture, you know, multi-year kind of layout of how teams manage that trade-off. It's got to be so hard to do. Like like to study that analytically or yeah, something exactly. like that would be very, exactly. you know, I mean, so much context. I mean, it would be a fascinating thing to do, though. All right. So this is Wharton Moneyball. You can join the conversation. one 844 Cade Massey and Shane Jensen in this morning. Open lines in this first segment. We've been talking about baseball, and we're going to talk more baseball at the bottom of the hour, I believe. We're coming up at 830. We're going to have – no, 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 top of the hour. Second guest this morning is going to be Ben Reeder. It might be Ben Ryder. Matt, 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 Matty will tell me which way to pronounce that. But Sports Illustrated writer who penned the column that led to the cover – that famous Sports Illustrated that cover. That led to the World Series. That led to the World Series. Yeah. That's ben, how it ben works, right? Ben created the Astros World Champions. Yeah. We're going to talk with him at the top of the hour if you want to stick around for that. Shane, uh, there's another sport that's still going on. Baseball stopped. You're talking about hockey, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk. So I know, I know you're only, no, but, the only topic you like to talk about more than the Sox, and maybe more than the Sox, is, yeah. is the Patriots. So yeah, yeah. What's, what's going on? In, I'm, I basically missed NFL last weekend. So what's going on in the NFL? Um, I think we're starting to solidify. I, I mean, because I think I feel like the story that at least we've been talking about over the like early season is just how random things seem to be and how unpredictable, or, totally. or how you know totally. how uh, this mismatch between our expectations and what's actually happening on the field with with who are the best teams, worst teams, etc. Um, and I think I think we're starting to sort of I feel like this last weekend kind of more solidified. You know a little bit who I think the good teams are. Okay, um, it's just not necessarily the teams we expected at the start of the season. So I mean, you know, so I, I, I if if I told you com- coming into the season that the NF- NFC division leaders would be Philadelphia, Minnesota. New Orleans right. and the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah, no. That was not on anybody's board, I don't think, yeah, no, right? No, three of those weren't on anybody's board. But they all, you know, they they all and they've all, you know, can they all continue 
through this week continue to look impressive. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable that I, you know, I never thought I'd be in a world where I'm trying to get Jared Goff on my fantasy team, and I can't get him because <laughs> somebody else took him with higher waiver priority. I mean, Jared Goff, this is not something that we were th- so, thought so about. did people just overreact to his bad rookie season? Was it too much to expect him to do something? Yeah, and I think, honestly, there's a psychology where we're just so used to seeing, you know, the L.A. Ram, the Rams as this sort of—it it takes a while to kind of, like, update, I think, this prior, because the Rams have been yeah. so mediocre for— like decade, fifteen years, whatever it's been. Yeah, and so, you know, I, I mean, I, I think that at least for me, it takes me a, a while to convince myself that a team has actually changed. I, it, it's the same. Th- I mean, the Saints have been kind of, you know, essentially a five hundred team. I feel like they've been seven and nine for like the last five years running yeah. or something. And like you feel that. like Breeze is forty four years old. And what do you really expect out of a yeah. quarterback that? And old? so you know, and 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 again, like right now, it's it's really kind of interesting to see they're winning with a lot of defense, defense in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. I just I, I don't mm-hmm. I don't know where that came from, but it's I mean that's great. I mean it, it is it's 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 great to see. Obviously, you want to see. You know these teams that have struggled for for many years to to kind of like move their way up. Well, as so, long as the Patriots stay on top, of course. <laughs> well, safe, when they do, the Patriots are safely yeah. ensconced at the top of our the Massey Peabody Power Rankings anyway, and they have been from the beginning of the year. They have They're, not been. You know, they certainly have not been impressively no. beating. I mean, that the Atlanta game was the only game I can sort of look at and say like, hey, that actually instills me with confidence going right. forward. Right. They, they they slip back a little bit, but you know, it takes. You say it takes. It takes you a little while to overcome your yeah. biases about yeah. the Rams or the Saints. It takes the data a little while to catch up as well. And the Rams finally are sneaking into our upper echelon. Mm-hmm. They gained three points, three three positions yeah. up to number six. But truthfully, there is still all, this great, basically, traffic jam at the in, there in the middle. And there's just not that much separation. I mean, even from the top, New England, we have as about a touchdown better than an average NFL team mm-hmm. on a neutral field. The best team in the league, only a touchdown better than the average team. So an average team might be Cincinnati right now. Yeah. Okay, so on a neutral field. And you drop down you drop down 10 spots. So drop down to our number 10 is Kansas City. And Kansas City is more than a field goal. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about about a three and a half, three to three and a half point difference between the best team in the league yeah. and the 10th best team in the league. That's a lot of folks who could make a run here at the end of the season. That's a lot of folks who, I mean, would you be that surprised by Minnesota, uh, I don't know, Minnesota-Kansas City Super Bowl? Uh, going into the season, yes, but I, I think your point is that, like, you know, essentially, and it's, I, I think there was an article, I think, on 538, I, for, I forget the author, talking about, you know, because everybody sort of, has, at least I've been thinking about, oh, this has been such a surprising NFL season. And it, you know, it's not actually been any more surprising as as, as any other. I, I guess this does happen every season. It's just we sort of trick ourselves into thinking. I don't know. Do you I, think it's I, think it's more I, surprising I, I, I or unpredictable than usual? I don't think the surprising is the key feature. I think the key feature is that that uh, it's just been all over the map. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to get signal. These things are so jumbled together. I mean, one thing that I feel like has been kind of driving a little bit of the unpredictability or or, or, or the surprise. Has been, you know, relative some some kind of key injuries within top teams, right? So Aaron Rodgers, obviously, like, yeah, I mean, that Aaron Rodgers in just, it, um, injury everything. basically changed that entire division. Yeah. Well, it changes the conference. Yeah, it, uh, it really it, changes the conference. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. So and and you know, I mean, Houston loses their 
rookie yes. quarterback who's doing yeah. fantastic. That probably the biggest well, story less playoff of the consequences of that one, I think. But you, know, who knows? Who no, knows? no, no. Cl- clearly, Rod, when you lose the best play, arguably yeah. the best player in the league. Sorry, Shane. Uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a big deal. Yeah. If you if you were gonna pick say conference finals right now, if you're gonna project mm-hmm. conference finals, yep. Which four teams would you go with? Um, New England versus Pittsburgh. I think is and see that's boring and, so, and not surprising, I'm sorry. right? I'm sorry. Well, that's why that's why the season's not most surprising. Yeah. That's like the same yeah. thing we've seen for I don't know. All right, all right, all right. I'll mix it up. I'll, I'll throw KC in with uh, New England. All right. I still can't. I can't pick again. I, I mean, New England. Honestly, New England's going to be in the AFC Championship game. I'm, 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 going, I'm going out on a limb and calling that. Unlike you know the previous decade where they've been in the AFC Championship you know, we, game. The, the, our projections, the Massey Peabody projections, do show Pittsburgh giving New England a run for home field, mm-hmm. which in, which matters. And so it, you know, if and New, I mean KC also. I mean, like again, New England's not in very safe position as far as home field goes for that AFC Championship game, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because I mean Pittsburgh's got the same record as New England. I can't even remember if they play each other this season or not. Um, but but KC is only a game behind them now, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. actually owns the tiebreaker too with them because they beat New England. So, but they don't with Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh went in there and smashed KC. That's true. Yeah. So what about what about the other division leader? The the the, the South seems to be at least competitive. Many of these games yeah. aren't. No, competitive. I, mean, I mean you know I, I come on one of the uh, here's my prediction: one of the AFC South teams will make the playoffs. <laughs> and then and then we'll flame out because that's just what the AFC South yeah, does. God, Come on, it, I mean, I mean, I'd love to. Buy, I mean, I'd love to be able to buy into Jacksonville or whoever it is making a run. But but who you are know, we this is. I mean, the AFC is kind of boring to be honest with you. Three yeah. of the divisions are, let's say, ninety percent ish locked up. New it's England, more Pittsburgh, exciting in the. It's more exciting in the. So NFC. let's talk NFC. That's the harder one to say. If you were going to pick, if you were going to pick think, a conference, I think. So I think the super exciting ones, at least for me. I mean, all of these divisions are going to be quite competitive. Actually, I think you know, obviously, you know, the AFC NFC South has you know three kind of legitimate teams in it: New Orleans, Carolina, and Atlanta. Yep. All of which I think could could I I could, I could talk seems, myself into any one of those. Atlanta seems like they're underperforming, right? I mean, yeah, they, they, I mean they. I mean, we all. I, I think we all kind. Of, you know, there is that kind of Super Bowl slump or whatever, and we all kind of thought they would regress a little bit, but. Um, no, they're a better team than they've been playing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I still think, I, I mean, I'm not right. Uh, I think LA and Seattle are still going to go at it for mm-hmm. most of the year, too. Yeah, I mean, Seattle's a great team. We're showing that as a 50 50 yeah. who wins the division. Yeah, and I, I think that's about right. I mean, in fact, I, you know, I, again, this is mostly prior, but until Seattle actually loses, <laughs> you know, Right. Until Seattle's actually knocked out, I'm going to count them in. Right? Yeah, you yeah, know? They've, they've been there. I guess that's kind of tautological, but whatever. No, no, I hear what you're saying though, because they've they've, they've had they have the history and they have the experience, yeah. and, and we're also working with these biases. So all the biases that keep us from believing in the Rams promote our believing in the yeah, Seahawks. That's exactly right. Their, um, we'll see if it's legitimate or not. Uh, Detroit versus Minnesota, I think, will be a really interesting kind of race down to the end. I mean, and again, it isn't. I mean, Green Bay's done. I mean. I don't know if you. I watched that. I mean, agree. Yeah. If you needed more proof of how important Aaron Rodgers is to the team, yeah. it is just watching somebody who I'm sure is you know a totally adequate backup quarterback. But I, I mean, it's tough to have an adequate backup. It's well, tough that's to have right. A good starting quarterback. That's right. Though. That's right. I mean, and if you do have an adi- really good backup quarterback, you can often you can get like a second, uh, um, almost a first round pick for him. What do you think about yeah right so yeah. Belichick strategy what what do you think about the Minnesota quarterback situation It's really interesting I mean Bridgewater if if Bridgewater I 
it's 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 you know if Bridgewater actually can come back and perform like you know is is fully healed, it's it's hard to argue not putting him in. I I just you know I I feel like kind of the I don't know this is like the hot take you know kind of phraseology, but the upside you know that he's got like that upside potential that I don't think. Keenan or even Bradford have, you yeah. know, but at the same time, they're doing so well with the, you know, these guys. Well, Bradford's going to IR right. apparently. Yeah, Bridgewater's okay, so. coming in. It's it's going to be a, such an interesting story because yeah. he had a he had a promising start and mm-hmm. then goes out with his tragic injury. Been out for a long time. What's he look like now? What's the? I mean, you never know what these young quarterbacks are going to do. You get these early signals that are bad, yeah. they turn out good. You get early signals that are good, they turn out bad. And that's what made made his injury so tragic. Is it was sort of like right at the point where you I learning. feel like we kind of like would have. You know, and it's it's sort of like you know, it'd be like if Carson Wentz had like tore his ACL in the first game of the season or something yeah. like that, and you're like, oh, right. So, are you on the Wentz? Wa- I am. Wagon? I am. They look great. I mean, they look fantastic. They put up 51 points on Denver. Who scores 51 in the, in the NFL? Yeah, Denver's got Denver Broncos right, right, have right. a good defense. They did not that day, <laughs> but that's partly for the. I mean, credit to the Eagles. No, I mean, I, I, I mean. I'm not ready to slot him into the Super Bowl because, again, I know, um, you know, I, I still take kind of a coin flip perspective a little bit come playoff time. But, oh, my goodness. Much, I'm much, s- no, hold on. Much, don't get too proud of your coin flip theory. It's, not, right. it's much less applicable in football, right? I mean, this, it's not baseball. Yeah, no, okay. Yeah, I'll back up from that. I'll, I'll, I'll say a safer statement. A lot can happen between now yeah, and the sure, playoffs, sure, sure. like a key injury or something like that in football. I think, I think you know, and—, and they still have two games against the Cowboys. Those are the games. I, I, I've left the NFC East until last discuss because those are the two games I am so excited so you, about coming up. You think up. the Cowboys still do? The Cowboys it, are legit, too. Is that because they have really good lawyers fighting battles in the federal courts? <laughs> well, that's a whole thing. But honestly, with that offensive— Don't go against Jerry Jones' lawyers. Well, they, He's got the best lawyers in the NFC East. I, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm pretty tired of that whole situation, just like I was tired of the Tom Brady situation. Yeah. Um, I mean— the, the analogy breaks down at a certain point with that, but um, I, I I think even with like Alfred Morris, whoever they'd have to sub in for Elliott with that offensive line, they're still yeah. a fantastic yeah, yeah, team. Yeah, yeah. So, do you, um, do you like Dak, Dak Prescott? I do. I think do he's. I think he's awesome. I, I I think he better or worse than Russell Wilson. Oh, I, he's not as good as Russell Wilson. I don't think. I don't. Will he, will he get there? Wilson was maybe performing really. Yeah, I mean, I mean, his, I, mean I mean, he, I, I think he certainly could. Put himself in that. Con- I mean, you know, I, I he's going to have to show a little bit more sustained success before I put him in the Russell Wilson category. Okay. But. So I'm going to spot you at Philadelphia in the NFC Championship. Who do you Ooh. want between Minnesota, New Orleans, and the Rams? Or the who Seahawks? do I want, or who do I think? Who, who are you calling? You got Seahawks. Four, four can- oh, Seahawks. See how boring you are. I'm sorry. You went with three of the four most predictable, long-standing, boring choices. All right, so we have three boring conferences. Tampa Bay. Then I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> If you want a wild card, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean Dallas could. I mean, I I could easily see Dallas there. I don't. I still I could, don't believe in the Rams. I'm not going with the Rams. I could easily see Dallas there. How about and New I, Orleans? Breeze in the defense. I mean, if that defense, I, I just, I, I guess I can't. I ha- can't buy into it yet. All right. Well, listen. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy and collaborator Shane Jensen, both faculty here at the Wharton School. Two other faculty collaborators, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, are out this morning, but 
Some of us are here every Wednesday morning. All year round, we've done some absurd number of shows at this point. I'm, I'm, we're coming up on 200 anyway. You can join the show. You want to be on the show, give us a ring. one 844 wharton 1-844-942-7866. Isn't, isn't the 200 episode, that's in TV. Don't they usually do the like retrospective like memories episode? Oh, yeah, we need to start working in. on that. we got yeah. weeks Greatest of preparation for that. Yeah. And yeah. Maybe they could bring some TV cameras in. Yeah. And that's worthy of a little video. Don't some, you some star guests or something yeah, from the sure. past. We can work on it. Matt's going to get working on that right now. We are rolling into the guest segment of the show. Next two half hours, we have some guests coming in, talking on the phone with us. In this half hour, Kelly Dwyer. Kelly is a baseball writer who's been working on the sport for more than 20 years, writing in places like Yahoo, ESPN, Sports Illustrated. He has recently started his own site, a subscription site. A lot of value there called The Second Arrangement. You can follow Kelly on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at KDO, at KD on hoops, at KD on hoops. Kelly Dwyer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm, uh, I'm happy to talk uh, this, this weird way that I became acknowledged as some sort of money ball leaning uh, basketball writer. Let's so very cool. We're, we're curious to hear about it, Kelly. Where are you calling in from this morning? I'm, I'm, I live in, for the last decade or so, in Lafayette, Indiana, uh, where I met a uh, very beautiful woman and her two young children at the time. I'm originally from Chicago, uh-huh. uh, and then moved down here when I ran out of money. Uh, <laughs> about, the, about the same time that, uh, you know, ironically or coincidentally or whatever term my dumb brain is allowed to use, uh, I got into this sort of uh, money ball leanings, I suppose, around the time that book came out and also around the time... Uh, uh, the basketball guys sort of got into that in uh, you know na- nascent spots online around 2003 uh, 2004. Well, you're in you're in hardcore basketball country down there, right? I mean, I don't know how much you're doing. We'll find out on college versus pro, but Lafayette, Indiana sounds like serious legit Huskers kind of. I mean, Hoosiers. Hoosier, Hoosiers kind of basketball country. You would think so, but but that for me that would mean venturing out into sports bars. That would mean human interaction. That would mean all sorts of things <laughs> that would take. Well, you don't want you don't want to taint your taint your like you know research by actually interacting with other people and, and introducing all their biases in there, right? Exactly, exactly. When also I, I'm I was dismayed to note when you move here and you walk into that sports bar, it doesn't matter. They're showing football. It could be the playoffs, it could be the Pacers in a game seven. They want to know about the draft that's coming up. It's wow. You know, this it, it's it's depressing not depressingly, but it it's just for this is a football country and I acknowledge that and that's that's why I headed into my literal parents' basement to uh, you know, try to make right with uh and right you know, this around also around the time the you know, the malice and the palace happened. So I moved back to Indiana around the time everyone was souring on into the Pacers, and, uh, and, and, and rightfully so. That was a, a, a team that spun out of control of its own accord. But, uh, but yeah, I had, a, I had a, lot of, a lot to work through around that time. So one of the reasons you caught our eye is that you didn't seem to start your career writing in basketball as an analytics guy. And so you've kind of come, you've, you've, you've converted along the way in some way. And it's always interesting to us to hear what, what leads to that kind of conversion. And, and, and you, you generally provide a more objective view on the analytics world. If you're not kind of born and bred into it. Yeah. I mean, we had Bill James books in our house, but they were in our house because my uncle bought them for my dad who gave a a read and a half and then just left them lying around the house. Uh You know, it's, it's, it, it, I, I came up with basketball because it was it was it was different. It wasn't as staid as my beloved baseball was. It was something there was something left to be learned in it when I kind of 
reapproached it in the mid nineties coming out of, you know, not wanting anything to do with sports at all for a little while and being a little punky kid that all of us were back then. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the, in the mid two thousands, there were, it was just, an, it was an odd time to be a fan and it was a terrible time to write about it. I was writing about it in pro bono sites and, and, and around that time sports illustrated luckily reached out to give a 24 year old, and what credentials I had for that a job, basically just opining on their website. So mm-hmm. with that in place, I had nothing left to do but to read and to watch as much as I could. And around that time, with John Hollinger and a few other writers, it was it became increasingly easier to acknowledge that you know we had a lot to learn uh, in, a, in a sport that we thought we kind of had sussed out. Mm-hmm. What's an example of an analytics? path you've gone down that has led to your thinking about basketball in a different way what's what's one of those insights or one of those stats that's led to it well i mean okay let's start with it's easy to be humble and acknowledge that you have like room to learn when a lot of it is just is just writing is writing hand in hand with what you've already assumed or acknowledged you just did not have you know the the the, you could not articulate it in, in any way that made any sense because you were up against sports illustrated and NBC telling the world that the New Jersey Nets were a high for a, were a run and gun sort of team with Jason Kidd running the show and that they were bringing fast break back to basketball and they're on the same level with the Kings in that realm and everyone should go watch these Nets and they just don't really yeah Jason Kidd you know they bust out from time to time and there's some highlights but they don't really seem like this sort of all out team and then you get into the world of possession stats which I had no idea about until I started reading John Hollinger uh, somewhere in, in OregonLive.com around 2001, mm-hmm. or, um, and and it just clarifies things that every team plays at a different pace, and that you have to, and that's what allowed me to go like, okay, well that makes sense because the 1996 Cleveland Cavaliers should not be the greatest defensive team of all time. I've always thought that, <laughs> right. but they've always had the lowest points per game total. So let's you know modify this in a way for pace and. For a college dropout that was chasing a writing dot com gig through various you know bartending shifts and and stints in very bad r and b bands you know this was this was music to my ears because I am not you know I did not do well in maths i did i i, I uh it this is not my field, so when I get this basic basic easy entry thing that's also sometimes matched with with great writing as as John Hollinger and kevin peltman and and others have done. You know, you can't help but but want to learn more from it. What have you learned about how to present analytics? How to how to more uh, effectively convey what's going on? Because com- that that I think is sort of like a bottleneck for a lot of adoption is just the the ability to kind of communicate. You know, not necessarily particularly sophisticated, but you know, even rudimentary analytics to people who are not open minded about it or just don't understand are, are also not good at maths. <laughs> yeah, you got to I mean you just have to be you got to be accessible. I mean I've I've again maybe it's just coming from that thing where I had to try to explain why I still found beauty in this game at its absolute worst, which how it was back then in 2002, 3, 4, 5, whatever year you want to pick. Um and and you take that same approach to to these new numbers. So you don't put the numbers in brackets cuz you can't figure out a way to make it look straight and narrow on the Microsoft Word document that you're sending off to your Sports Illustrated editor for the online site at 5 in the morning. So you just find a way to use it in words and to make it, you know, how you would explain it into an email to a buddy or you would, Hmm. you know, say it at those bars that you sometimes go to. And you don't make it basic and you don't make it patronizing, but you kind of re-explain it to yourself in a way that's also funky and cool. And you just 
I'm still trying to do that right now because, thankfully, I'm still learning, as we all are, about these these sports as these new kids that are born in 1997, you know, spring into our league every year. So that's what you do. You just try to make it accessible. You just try to make it fun for people to realize that that they're you know uh, you know that they're enjoying something that they you know without having to click on links or watch videos or or go through brackets because back then I didn't have that uh, you know sort of stuff to work through and and right now I just don't have the time to learn it. You put it well in a, in a way that a, a, a buddy of mine has said to me recently. I've done some writing with Bob Tedeschi, who's a who's a, works for Stat, professional journalist, been doing it for a long time, New York Times, and he said we need to take you out of the stats class out of the classroom and into the bar essentially and and for someone who's accustomed to writing and talking in the classroom that is a little bit of a challenge and but i think it's if you have that perspective how would you talk about this if you're on a bar stool Mm -hmm. um, versus at a lectern is probably a a good start at a bar you want to be in right yeah exactly you want to patronize you don't want to if you don't want to read someone telling you the thing you know it just think to the to the places that you enjoy taking in those stats and make modifications to what that person make it a little less crusty here and a little less warm here, you know, and a little season it a bit more. And you know, I may have avoided sports bars and still do, but I am I am no stranger to the darkest corners of every four, five, and six a.m. cop bar in Chicago, and all the you know the following hipster joints that you know that led me to this path. And that's where these come in sometimes too, where you have these conversations every so often after wanting to escape and not wanting to talk your job after hours, after spending all day in front of the TV watching the Charlotte Bobcats. But sometimes you do stumble upon people that you do want to talk to, and that's what you get into. You talk about how pace manages things. You talk about how you know efficiency. Yeah, you are right about Antoine Walker. You're, you're totally right, Kyle. You're totally right. But also look at this. He shot 25 times to do this. And, right. You, know, you, right. you can toss that stuff in there because you're doing it to yourself. We're talking to Kelly Dwyer. Kelly is a basketball writer, been covering the sport for 20 years, writes for outlets like Yahoo, ESPN, and Sports Illustrated. He's got a new website called The Second Arrangement. You can also be followed on Twitter at KD on Hoops. Kelly, what's your take on the early NBA basketball season? The Celtics are surprising after the injury. The Cavaliers are disappointing. The Thunder I can't quite make sense of. What, what storylines are jumping out to you? I mean, all those are – none of this should honestly be surprising – uh, what we have to take from it, I suppose, is just the acknowledgement that we're still in November. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that yes, it, the, the trick is to, is to not look terrible while you're figuring it out. Uh-huh. And Oklahoma City of late has not figured that out. And Cleveland all season has not, outside of having to let you know, LeBron James dominate in an unsettling way, and certainly not sustainable way, um, you know, but that's all. That was always going to be in place. And in an eighty in an eighty two game season, uh, you know, you can make it to maybe by January. These teams can figure out to to at least get three of these. You know, they can they can balance it out, and there still is plenty of time. With Oklahoma City, you got to worry about the depth, and with Cleveland, you have to worry about you know just the overall makeup of a team that still wants to shoot its way out of trouble. But in terms of worrying and fretting, I'm, I, just, I, can't, I can't do that until, until I, get, I see some snow first. Yeah, so which of these, uh, you know, kind of with that in mind, which of these kind of early season trends do you actually buy into? Do you, do you see Boston at the, still at the top of the, the East at the end of the year? I mean, I, I, judging from what you're saying, you, still, you probably see Cleveland and um, you know, Oklahoma moving up. Is that right? 
Yeah, but I also see, I mean, it's what I mean is, is if there's a professionalism involved, when we say top of the East, what do we mean? We just mean piling up wins in a regular season that kind of means much uh, something, but it really is just about getting your act together and, and compiling, you know, baseball card stats. So, you know, yeah, top of the East, I think Boston will be there because they have Brad Stevens and a, a whole roster full of, of fellas that get at it and are going to match professionalism with this emerging talent and, in a lot of cases, creative touch that was there well before Kyrie got there. And, you know, that goes for less talented but, but no less you know, exacting outfits in Detroit and Orlando that are just going to pile up wins when everyone else's heads are turned. So, yeah, and Cleveland will be able to LeBron and sometimes Kevin Love their way into wins. That's, that's just how it is. But, I mean, the trend, if we're talking about who's going to be at the top of the conference, is just piling up these Ws through a slog of the season. And, uh, yeah, Boston seems well-equipped for that. Okay, well, I guess I'll ask a very specific question. Do you, do you, based on what you've seen so far, do you see, has this kind of, do you see the kind of inevitable Cleveland-Golden State final as less inevitable? No, I can't get away from the the fact that LeBron James can tilt a court mm-hmm. sometimes, and and I'll have to revisit this. But if if even as things stand now, even with 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 Cleveland looking as as wildly and as out of it and as, as unfocused as they are, they have a season end on a Wednesday, and they get until Saturday and Sunday to figure out an opponent out, and then they get to unleash LeBron James for an ungodly amount of possessions. Mm-hmm. And then they yeah. get to do that, you know, to, on their way to four wins in seven games. Yeah. And uh, until something terribly goes wrong, I, I can't get away from that. What, what, how, do you, the, the, how do you feel about the next LeBron James? How do you feel about the Bucks prospects this year, from what little we've seen so far? I mean... It's worrying because because they just look like they're going with like Jason Kidd with the Nets back then. They look like they're going to be this amazing defensive team, and they're not. And you'd hope they'd have turned the corner. And he's putting up these amazing stats, but again, it comes down to competence from day to day, and that's hard to do when you have this fitful group of teammates that's surrounding a player that that we have that we've never seen before. He's a Shaq that can kind of dribble, I suppose, uh, with a little <laughs> of LeBron thrown in, uh-huh. and also he's kind of a helicopter. So it's, so when you put together this team with these disparate parts and, and Michael Carter-Williams is here, oh, no, it's Michael Bay, and you can have these point guards in and out, and now you're taking the chance on, on Bledsoe, it's, you know, it, it's, it's unsettling. So it's understandable that they have absolutely no chemistry from, from game to game and, and year to year. What is impressive is, is their outlook overall. It's, it's just as Kevin Arnovitz beautifully detailed in the ESPN earlier this year, you know, are their owners going to get in the way, and is can their coach, you know, stay out of the front office's way long enough to, mm-hmm. uh, to put together some sort of consistency that that kid can get used to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you've mentioned the NBA executives a few times now. The, the construction of all the teams that we've been talking about has been pretty dynamic. A lot of moves in the offseason, a lot of decisions that they make or don't make. How do you think NBA execs look at the game today that is different than how they used to look at it? Well, I mean, just you could pick a year because with the NBA, what we thought was going to be the next decade that, if, you know, the, the Tom Thibodeau decade that would last until 2025 didn't materialize. So it, it, it's different than looking back to how it was in 1998 when Wes Unsell, uh, you know, traded uh, uh, 
uh, big for small and, and young for old and viewing for Swever to Sacramento, but it's also different than it's going to be in, in 2012. And, and it, Things are spiraling so much, and we we just saw a huge, you know, a group, not a huge group, but a couple of uh, sort of hotshot young executives that would have seemed to have everything working their way coming into their new gig. Someone like Rob Hennigan in Orlando, uh, a, a bright guy, a really smart guy, but in the NBA, you get kind of, uh, you know, you're stuck to the suit that they give you when you show up to host the show and, and he had, and, and, you know, sometimes the best intentions get caught up in the same things that dog the old school guys that screw up. And that's the, the, the bad luck and bad timing and ego and, uh, and attempts to keep your job. So let's, the, let's the step it up is, to the ownership. Just humble now though. Let's step it up to the ownership level then, because I think a lot of the differentiation comes from the patience and wisdom of the owners. What owner group would you bet on, in, in some of these rebuilds that we see around the league? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to escape the cynicism, uh, you know, as someone who would document every awful step of, of two different lockouts. Um, the hope is that they're growing on their own because these guys never see this as a rebuild. These guys all see this as, uh, you know, the next Phoenix Suns that could score 47 wins out of nowhere. So, but the credit to guys in Memphis that have, that have learned to sort of get out of their executives way, uh, learned, you know, honestly, credit to guys in Golden State that I think maybe I'm giving them credit ahead of time, but I, I, you can tell maybe their heart's in the right place, even if they can't shut up about it. So I think the owners are hopefully kind of learning on the fly um, in terms of rebuilding. I don't know if I can trust the Milwaukee rebuilding such as it is. I, I don't know if I can, I don't, I can't really trust any owner to get out of the way because it's a, it's, it's a borderline hobby to them. It's, it can still be a toy to them at the trade deadline when things can get naughty and you can talk yourselves into things. So, uh, you know, sorry for the cynicism prevailing, but uh, you know, I'd rather watch the games. So we're, we're, we're talking to Kelly Dwyer. Kelly's a longtime basketball writer. He's got a site called The Second Arrangement. Um, Kelly, I'd like to think that they might learn from baseball. I mean, baseball has been a source of optimism about ownership groups and executives and learning how to do things well. The last two World Series have been played by model organizations. Is there any chance the NBA might learn from looking across and seeing what's going on in baseball? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it go. I think it swings both ways. Listen, the Golden State Warriors are a model organization. It's just in this modern era where you can put a microphone and and a, uh, you know uh, you can you can put the owner in front of these various outlets where you can have quotes pulled from him. It and it's always it's you know, the him saying the dumb thing. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about these things more often, and that's where the learning is going to come from. I think all these NBA owners, they're on the right path because they got into basketball for the same reason people got into owning basketball teams in the 1970s. They're competitive and they enjoy the game. So the issue here is staying out of their own way and letting them enjoy it in the same way that they enjoy building their businesses and letting the business people do it while they just drop in, you know, from time and time and offer big picture ideas and then hopefully can get out of the way by draft time. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think the learning is going to come. That's where I, that's where I'm hoping it is, and I, I'm I'm confident of that. I just you know I'd like them to kind of chill for a bit in terms of the talking. <laughs> that's that seems reasonable. We, down to just a, a minute or two with you. I'm curious what you're seeing from rookies. You know, we, we're so much. So many rookies are coming out. You alluded to it earlier. So young. How how different do you think that is, and and where do you see that that going? Is there any chance that there's a change there? Are, are we is are we are we looking at an era of 19 year olds contributing in in the NBA? 
We are, but we're going to be looking at an era of, of literal college freshmanism, like the, the idea of it becoming a lifestyle, and I think that's okay. That someone deciding the person that they want to be at a, at a very important age, 18, 19, as a player, and not what a coach or a system wants them to be, I think that's important, and I think that's good, and I much prefer that, and these guys being on the road and being taken care of and being paid, obviously, I much prefer that than watching you know, Joe Smith for a couple of years in Maryland and building up his Q rating. I, I, I much prefer this, even if it goes the wrong way. Even if we get a couple of years of kids with Bob Marley posters on the wall in the form of basketball games, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that because we're going to see you know, these individual streaks and we're going to see kids getting paid. So I found a way to enjoy watching these Colts, and, and I, I hope others will join me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, listen, Kelly, uh, we, we appreciate your joining us this morning. We appreciate the work that you're doing. Good luck as you continue to try to make sense of this early NBA season. I'll have fun with it. Take care, guys. All right, man. That was Kelly Dwyer. Kelly's a basketball writer, been covering basketball for more than 20 years. You can see his work on Yahoo ESPN SI. You can also follow him on Twitter. His handle at Twitter, at KD on hoops, at KD on hoops. Good for a basketball writer to have the same initials as the greatest basketball, one of the greatest basketball players on the planet. Anything jump out to you about that conversation, Shane? Well, I, I think it's. Um... I mean, I, I, I guess it just reaffirms sort of like my own belief that like, you know, these kind of early season trends that we're seeing are not necessarily anything we can, <laughs> you know, I mean, it is kind of a cynical, unexciting viewpoint, but it's not, you know, don't buy in too much into the drop hype. In, we can't yeah. drop in and look at 10, 10 games and... Yeah, that's right. I mean, as much as I'd love to see something besides Cleveland and Golden State in the oh finals, you know. Get, don't get optimistic. Yeah. Check those expectations. All right. Fantastic. That has been one half of our show here at Wharton Moneyball. We've still got another half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning. Live from the Wharton School, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Shane Jensen. Eric and Adi are out and about. They will be back. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring, one 844 Wharton. That's one 844 942 7866 You can also email us, radio at Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Drop us an email. Matt Dots, standing by for your email right this minute. Send us, we will respond. You can also send it if you catch us one of the times that we're replayed, something like four times over the course of the next week. You can uh, drop us a note that way. You can follow us on Twitter. We are on Twitter these days. Our handle up there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall, and we try to keep keep some interesting bits out there in the sports analytics world. We are at the point in the show where we have a second guest. Top of the second hour is a guest slot for us, and we are delighted to have Ben Ryder join us. Ben, if you've been following baseball, you might know of him, even if you don't know exactly his name. Ben is the writer for Sports Illustrated who wrote the column, the article, 2014, that led to the cover that made one of the great predictions in journalism history. We'll go into that, but first, let's welcome Ben Ryder. Hey, guys. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We're delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning, Ben? New York City. All right. Well, that's a long way from Houston, but... 
You made a very famous trip down there we want to hear about, but you're, I'm guessing you've had a pretty good week. Is that safe to guess? It has been a good week. You know, I, I think back to the end of Game 7 of the World Series, where it seems as if the Astros, unusually for that series, were going to coast on in and get an easy win, and our prediction was going to prove correct and all that. And I think back to a thought I had late in the game, which was, man, if they somehow figure out a way to blow this now, I might be in trouble and Sports Illustrator might be in trouble too. And even the most analytically inclined of thinkers might believe that the jinx is real. Mm. Uh, Thankfully for for us, that didn't happen. Yeah, it's it's a testament. That World Series definitely taught us that there is no such thing as an easy win. That's right. That's right, for sure. I mean, you think back to Game 5 one of the most wild seesawing games I've ever seen. And I think, technically, by win expectancy, one of the most seesawing games in World Series history. Right. Game 7. Game 7 was not like that, which is probably a good thing uh, for my heart and for a lot of hearts around Houston. It, they, we needed the break for sure. That shocking, that shocking first inning. I mean, just took the pressure right off and then they followed it up. That was a, it, was kind of, it was kind of a relief. I don't know how it felt as a Dodgers fan, but it was kind of a relief as, as an Astros fan. Ben, I, we want to hear more about the story and 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 kind of the 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 details and how it happened. But first, I want to hear a little bit more about how you experienced the World Series and this season. I mean, it it must have been in the back of your mind, even you know back in April, that this was the year that the cover would either you know bear out or not. How did you well? How did you experience the Astros in this season? Well, it certainly was, but it wasn't just this season, really. You know, I've written, I believe it's 21 cover stories for Sports Illustrated now. And this one, for whatever reason, didn't just start getting attention this year. From the moment it hit newsstands in June of 2014 and was plunked into mailboxes, this thing made an enormous splash. At first, people were furious about it, uh, honoring the worst team anyone had ever seen (laughs) with this, you know, this prestigious position on the front of Sports Illustrated. Uh, and those people, I should add, included certain writers within Sports Illustrated. Is, is that right? Thought okay. That, thought that this was a huge mistake. Uh, got a lot of backlash on it. People thought it was just ridiculous. Then 2015, of course, they were good all of a sudden. Everybody started to think, oh, man, maybe this thing, uh, maybe there's some truth to this. Right. Surprisingly. So really, since that happened, it's it followed me. I've been associated with the Astros. And, of course, this year, you know, I saw Jeff Luno, the GM in spring training, and they remember, too. He said, the first thing he said to me is, this is our year. <laughs> I guess it, it turned out that that was the case. That's awesome. That's awesome. So can, can you tell us a little bit about the origins of the story? Like, why, why did you go down there to begin with, and, and what did you learn at that time that led to you guys writing it this way? <clears throat> right. Well, we were really drawn down there by one factor, which was, just how incredibly awful this franchise had become, mm-hmm. right? We knew that they were run by very intelligent front office executives, including Jeff Luno, a Wharton graduate, I believe. Yes, sir. Uh, and they had had success in St. Louis, but they were not having any success whatsoever in Houston. They, people were enraged, in fact, by how much they were losing. It seemed like they were tanking. It was unclear what the plan was. So I wanted to go down and negotiate access really unprecedented access, at least maybe since Michael Lewis and Moneyball or something like that, to have a look inside the organization, to sit actually in their draft rooms and draft meetings before the 2014 draft and get a sense of just what they were trying to do down there. And I came away after a few days with the genuine feeling that they were on to a new model 
of rebuilding, that it was rebuilding with a purity, as they called it. Some people would call it a, you know, horrific intensity that had never before been uh, attempted. And that their decision-making process was going to be based not just on analytics and metrics, but they had found a way to bring back in what had been an overlooked source of information for some teams previously, which was the human factor, things like scouts' opinions and chemistry and stuff that a lot of statisticians scoff at, but to bring that in and synthesize it with all of their hard data to guide their decision-making going forward. Ben, Sounded like something that had a shot of working to me. So when we, when we put that cover out there, a lot of people accused us of being tongue-in-cheek, of just trying to you know, throw a hot take into the world. That's not what it was. Ben, how long have you been covering baseball, professional baseball? Uh, I, I started at Sports Illustrated in 2004. But back, that was real, back then I was really a fact-checker and researcher. Uh, I'd say I started focusing on baseball, though I still do other things as well, in maybe around 2007, 2008. Okay, so at that time you had been covering it, focused on it anyway, for six or seven years. Right. Did How open were you to the role of analytics and this kind of approach to baseball before you got down there and and how much of it was just from scratch and you were persuaded in a single trip extremely open to it i mean i, I you know do my best to keep up with them i'm not attending the sloan conference every year but i certainly follow it uh as best as i can i'm a believer in it certainly if you be a, you're a fool now if you don't recognize its value um but i've always had slight skepticism, as I think is healthy with anything involving big data, about using it as the be-all and end-all, as opposed to an extremely powerful tool right. by which you can make your decisions. Right. So I, we've lauded the Astros. We lauded, we lauded Jeff and, and Sig Mejdal before they were at the Astros when they were at the Cardinals at blending traditional scouting with the quantitative analytics approach. When you were mm-hmm. down there, and you know this is a general issue for organizations and increasingly so how to blend algorithms with traditional human judgment what did you what did you see when you had this unprecedented access for a few days back in 2004 what did you see on how they did that what lessons do you think other organizations might draw from that i saw a lot um you know i saw obviously you know the self-christened nerd cave as the analysts call themselves down in houston in the corner of the room tapping away obviously these guys are brilliant drawn from NASA, you know, the country's best physics, PhD departments, engineering departments, things like that. But I saw them in the same room with guys like Nolan Ryan and these old, you know, 65, 70-year-old Texan scouts with bushy white mustaches. Okay, hold on, Ben. Are you just, are you just thinking, this is... I think I've seen this scene before, though, (laughs) right? Well, you've seen this scene with them being, sitting across from each other at a table, antagonizing one another. Right. What I saw was them sitting on the same side of the table, complimenting each other, working together. Hold on. I think that Nolan Ryan in the nerd cave. Really? That's not dramatic license. <laughs> no. I, well, it was, it was in one meeting. Room. I don't think Nolan Ryan hangs out in the nerd cave typically. <laughs> It'd be probably pretty case. hard to program with Nolan Ryan sitting there, I would guess. But <laughs> but in this particular case, especially in this draft meeting, I, they allowed me to sit in which was in advance of them making the first overall pick in 2014, they were all sitting in the same room and they all had their say. Like certainly there was some skepticism between them, but that's fine. Basically they are empowered to do the jobs that they've always done. And it's up to the GM and it's up to Sig Meidel really 
to coordinate all of this uh, information of different types into one decision. And one way to do it with a scout is, for example, if a scout has issued an opinion on somebody, whether it's about his heart or competitiveness or something that's not really in, related to spin rates or launch angles or OBP or, or any of those things, they will look back and regress that against you know the previous hundred times, every other time they have on record that the scout has issued this observation. And they will see how that turned out in that case. Mm-hmm. We're trying to project how this soft opinion might turn out in this case. So that's uh, one example of how of how they process that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So so I and I mean I this kind of dovetails with what you said before that kind of intrigued me about how like Houston really oh. intended to sort of not just construct a team that like had the kind of best predicted quantitative performance because I mean that's something I guess all teams can do. It's trying to build right. in these like what we more consider more intangible things like chemistry as well as you know hard and all these kind of more scouting kind of concepts how right. how do they do that i mean like like are they like somehow coding chemistry in to their <laughs> models yeah. well i think they they regress the scouts observations and they combine them in their kind of proprietary system to spit out a projected value essentially mm-hmm. like it's essentially it's essentially a war although they do it differently but it's it's a player's value as related to what they're expected to have to pay them in the next however many years. Um, and how they weight the various factors, I think that's kind of the secret sauce. And I think sometimes it's not as kind of disciplined as that. I think sometimes, like with Justin Verlander, right, when they added Justin Verlander at the trade deadline, this was not something that their probabilistic models liked at all. They do not like the idea of adding a 34-year-old pitcher making $30 million a year and sacrificing three top prospects mm-hmm. you can control for 18 years at the league minimum for him. Like, that, right. the models did Huge. not like this move. Right. But, look, one of, the, one of their strengths is they're able to step outside their models and say, look, we can see that this team needs Justin Verlander to win the World Series, so we're going to do it. And they got it done with two seconds before the August 31st trade deadline. And I think it's very fair to say that they would not have won the World Series had they not made that move. Wow. You know, we, we were, were talking to Ben Ryder. Ben is the Sports Illustrated journalist who wrote the Astros column back in 2014 that led to the famous, now famous, even more famous, Sports Illustrated. It's been famous for three years, but now it's crushed it. <laughs> Sports Illustrated cover of predicting that the Astros would win the 2017 World Series, which they did. Ben, we were talking coming in here before the show about this tension between trading away these prospects that you've cultivated, you know, and you've made all these great decisions and you built this great farm system. And then you sometimes then would trade away for a little bit of win. Now you're going to increase the probability of winning now, but it's going to cost mm-hmm. you. That's a very real tension. And, and it'd be interesting to know how Jeff thought about that and how other teams have thought about it. We've never seen it analyze a kind of a big empirical study of which, how teams manage the tension between those two things. Right. And they're also, you know, beyond the numbers, they're personally invested in these players. Right. They've known them in many cases since they were, you know, 16 years old or younger uh, and have followed them and have drafted them and invested a lot of time in them. So it's an emotional decision as well. But I think what Jeff would tell you is you can only trade these guys once, right? There's no going back once you make this move. So you have to be absolutely sure that this is the move to make. Like he's had many chances to trade his prospects. He's a top farm system. Uh, his own team, Dallas Keuchel, 
was extremely disappointed at the regular trade deadline on July 31st when they did essentially nothing while the Dodgers were adding Hugh Darvish, right. the Cubs were adding Jose Quintana, right. the Yankees were adding Sonny Gray. The Astros just sat there and Keuchel spoke out. But look, they're not going to do something just because they feel like they're supposed to do it because they know the value of these prospects is so great that it would damage the organization in the long term if they did something rash. They didn't at least believe had a great chance of working. So, but Ben, you can't ever be certain, right? Yeah, they, they didn't. They didn't know for a fact that Verlander would. I mean, and speak. Yeah. I, so the Verlander thing, I've got a little yeah. bit of a problem. I mean, that is definitely a retrospective narrative, right? I mean, they were essentially a coin flip away from yeah. losing the World Series. And would we then be talking about how they sacrificed? You know, they went for. You know, they kind of deviated from their 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 plan and went for a win for it now and got burned because now they don't have a World Series and they've got this you know aged pitcher and <laughs> they lost like these top three prospects. I mean, I I feel like on on a couple pitches this entire narrative changed. Well, I think that's baseball first of all. And I think you're absolutely right. The narrative would have changed somewhat. But I think in Verlander specifically, they have a couple outs, right? First of all, he's not going anywhere after this season. He's going to be there for two years. Mm -hmm. You can say, oh, great, a mid-30 pitcher for two years. Well, the fact is, if you were to go out in the free agent market right now and try to add a pitcher as good as Justin Verlander, you couldn't get him for two years, right? You'd have to give him, like, five years, six years. You'd be paying this guy until he was 40, probably more per year than the Astros are going to pay Justin Verlander for the next two years. There's a lot of value, actually, in that short-term commitment, relatively short-term commitment, even at a high average annual value that they got for him. The other thing I'd point out is that when you look at the deals made for all these pitchers, the Astros arguably, and you never know because they're prospects, maybe they'll turn out to be superstars, arguably seem to have given up the least, okay? Like, you look at what the Cubs gave up for Jose Quintana. Eloy Jimenez, who's the centerpiece of that trade, is like the best hitting prospect in baseball, at least top five. Wow. With the, the best pitcher in the Astros deal uh, is Franklin Perez, who most people have in around number 50, yeah, top, I, 100, top 100 prospects. I'll just point out, Jose Quintana is a lot younger than Justin Verlander, so you would think that the Cubs would have to give up less, uh, more he's, for that. He's not as, but he's not as good, and we're only looking at really two years, so the chances of him since sustaining some significant organization-damaging decline are minimized, at least. You know, one thing that I think is definitely true is one of the reasons that you build a farm system as rich as the Astros built or that you accumulate draft picks like Bill Belichick does in New England, one of the one of the very reasons for doing that yep. is to have a little bit extra capital to spend yeah, when, I mean, when you want to put some right. chips on that's something, right. uh, take, a, take a chance. And, you, yeah. and, and, you can, and, you, and the Astros can better afford to do it because they've got the farm system that they have. And and I love yeah. I love the phrase you used earlier Ben. One of the strengths is being able to step outside your model. They weren't be, they weren't beholden. They recognize, you know, that's going to get us in the running. And then you need mm-hmm. breaks. And we're we're just going to we're going to lean against that a little. We're going to try to create one of our own breaks here. And it's it doesn't make and it a relatively easier. low risk break as you've pointed out. Re- re- yeah. Relatively low risk, but there's always going to be there's always going to be risk sure. there. We're talking to Ben Ryder. Ben is the Sports Illustrated writer behind the Houston Astros article in 2014, leading to the very famous cover. Can you tell us more about the cover decision? You know, there <laughs> you, you caught some snark after this because the, when the when they won, because it's like, oh yeah, Ryder, like you like like you had anything to do with that cover. Journalists don't usually get to pick the cover, but <sighs> it sounds like. 
you and Chris Stone or whoever it was were kicking these things around. So can you tell us how you decided to cover it this way? Sure. One more thing to wrap up the Verlander uh, discussion is that the Astros leaving tell you they could never have expected him to be as good as he was. This is like a 99th percentile type of outcome for Justin Verlander uh, as far as their projections for him. So that was, that was helpful to, to the cause. Right. Now, as far as, as far as the cover, look, this was not supposed to be the cover of the magazine. Like, we'll lay that out there. This was, I went down to Houston. I was going to do a feature on the Astros. I thought it was going to be a great feature. Did not expect they would put the worst team anyone had ever seen on the cover of the magazine. In fact, even as the week was approaching, it was not supposed to be the cover of the magazine. But a few things happened. The NBA Finals ran short that year. The Stanley <laughs> Cup Finals ran short that year. Really? U.S. soccer, men's soccer, lost a heartbreaker in the last minute to Cristiano Ronaldo in Portugal in the World Cup. So they weren't going to be the cover anymore that week. The other option was Michelle Wee, who had broken through to win the U.S. Open, and Alan Shipnuck, our golf writer, or one of our golf writers, had written a brilliant profile of Michelle Wee finally coming through. He felt strongly this should have been the cover, and he was publicly outraged when the Astros <laughs> came out of the cover. This is not something that happens, right? It's not like writers usually are going on Twitter and you know, half-jokingly blasting their editors-in-chief over their cover selections. But, but that's what Alan Shipnuck did when the Astros were on the cover, uh, which has led to a lot of you know a lot of humor over the next that's, three and a half years, and, especially now. Bit, hold on, yeah, bit. Let's I, bit. I want to get just a little bit more on that. I missed what you said. Okay. What what did Michelle Weed? Did she won her first tournament? Was that the breakout she, event? She first won the major. US Open. Oh, she the won the U.S. Oh my God. Okay. First major. Let right. me just say, I think I think one of Sports Illustrated's strength for a while has been their golf coverage. By the way, and Shipnuck's, <laughs> and Shipnuck's great. Yet it's also one of these women in sports things, right? It's that you don't have that many chances to put, you know, to, to, right. you, and you're supposed to take advantage of them all you can. And here you are putting the worst <laughs> team in baseball on the cover. Yeah. That's pretty sharp. That's pretty sharp. He, he had a lot of good arguments, and he still does. Uh, but I think, you know, I think he's conceded. Yeah, possibly. he'll concede it now, and, as of last week. Way. But listen, I, you're, it's true that writers don't make the call about what's on the cover, but in this case, I've had more uh, to do with it, I think, than in most. Okay. Chris and I sat down, and we looked at this plan that I'd written 5,000 words about in the magazine, and we looked at the future, and we talked about, you know, he asked me, when, if this is going to work, which I think that it will, you've convinced me, when will it happen? And everything was pointing to 2017. As far as the ages of the players, you know, Altuve was going to be 27, Springer's going to be 28, Correa was not going to be too young anymore. He's going to be 23, although, of course, he jumped his own timeline years ago. Okay, and so it would also give them enough time to have accumulated enough decisions to have actually built something. Like, if you look at the World Series roster, only 11 players of the 25 we're even in the organization at any level when we put that cover story out, right? Wow. This is not like we can follow this group of players. Well, certainly there was a nucleus there. But it was more about their process and the decision-making timeline that led us to zero in on 2017. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great story. We're always trying to emphasize process, and you guys give us a yeah, fantastic— Yeah, to a certain extent, that makes it even more impressive that you were really, you really were, at its essence, in writing about a process or, and, and kind of an organizational— like, you, you were writing about an organization, not the individual components that eventually right. accomplished this task. So how, how did the—you had just spent some time with those guys. How did those guys react when, when you landed, when you, this cover came out? <laughs> um, I think they weren't a hundred percent thrilled. I know they weren't. I know they weren't a hundred percent thrilled. Like, obviously, they cooperated with the story. They obviously wanted the the public, the nation, to have some idea of what they were actually trying to do down there, as opposed to just 
losing in novel ways every night. Like they loved walk-off errors that year. <laughs> they wanted some, you know, narrative out there besides that. I don't think they expected it to be a cover. I know they didn't because I couldn't have expected it was going to cover. And they certainly didn't expect Sports Illustrated to put a national deadline on this innovative new effort that they were just kind of in the beginning right. of installing. Right. So that was a bit of a drawback for them, but I don't think anybody has any regrets anymore. Ben, what do you think? What do you think? What are some of the nuances in the story you think we're missing, or what, in what way do you think people are getting the story wrong? One of the things that jumped out to me. You wrote a you wrote a follow up piece recently, just as the World Series started, and in there you named some of the missteps, some of the mistakes, or at least some of the misses. They may not have been mistakes, but they were misses over the last three years. And I and I love that you did that because I think it's easy to think, oh, you know, these guys, everything lined up just right, or they happened about a thousand on this thing. They didn't. They made a number of they 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 tried some things that didn't work out, which I think is inevitable. Yeah, and I mean that that almost underlies uh, any successful process has to take into account that there's randomness and outcomes, and so you know it's 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 good to talk about you know what went wrong as well. Yeah, I think that is perhaps the biggest misconception about the front office, at least. I think partially because they came from outside baseball, although I don't think they should be viewed as baseball outsiders anymore. They've been in the league for over 10 years. But obviously Jeff Luno was a managing consultant. Big Meidel was a NASA engineer. I think a lot of people viewed them as these know-it-all geeks almost coming in and trying to upset everything, never thinking they were wrong, thinking they were right about everything. That's not true. What they were trying to accomplish by their decision-making process was simply getting marginally more decisions right and the competition, mm-hmm. and they always allowed for missteps, uh, and they were significant ones, perhaps even more than they could have expected uh, when it, back in 2014. For instance, everybody knows that they passed on Chris Bryant in the 2013 draft to pick uh, Mark Appel with the number one overall pick. That's a big mistake. Right. But they made another one at the end of 2014. I, you, I actually couldn't even recognize it yet because it was too recent when I wrote the story. But at the end of spring training in 2014, they outright cut a guy that they had inherited from the previous regime who had struggled on the big league level for a few years who kept telling them, guys, I made a swing change over the winter. I really think it's working here. Mm, mm. But they didn't give him enough at-bats in spring training, and they just kind of let him go after having – he passed through waivers and all the teams had a shot at him, by the way. That guy was J.D. Martinez, who virtually immediately in Detroit became, like, instantly with his new swing, one of the top five or ten hitters in the league as My. he remains this day. So they were able to persevere through these significant mistakes they had. And more important than that, they learned from him. And Jeff Luno said, yeah, we definitely give guys who have said they made a change in the offseason – more of a shot to show spring training. <laughs> Is that right? Okay. It just it just goes yeah. to show. I, th- th- this says to me that like you know, given, given that Houston is such a well run organization and they still make these kind of mistakes, how many mistakes are being made by the not well run organizations? <laughs> right? right. Yeah. Wow. Well, and you said there, Ben said there at the end. He said, and they've learned from them. So it's not yeah. only that they have such a good process that they can afford some missteps, inevitable missteps, but also that they try to learn from the ones that they that they get. Ben, speaking of learning, what what have you learned from this experience, and what's what what's on your what's on the horizon for you? <laughs> well, Who's I'm winning in twenty twenty? Is what we want to know. Actually, I'll tell you, man. Like, this thing has affected my own life, even away from sports center, from sports writing, and you know, really some attention I've had due to this thing, and it's really focusing on process over outcome. There you go. What these guys, what these guys are all about. 
even in my day-to-day life, really. I think we used to judge, I used to judge myself on, you know, things like grades in school, and I don't know, just like whatever happened at the end, you know? Just like it would be a mistake to judge the Astros because they won that relatively random Game 7 as opposed to losing it, right? Like, that was like a 50-50 toss-up, came out in their favor. That's great. That's what they always wanted. But what really matters is the process, the way that you do things as you go through these accumulation of all the decisions you make you know it's a cliche which you hear in baseball clubhouses every day but doing things the right way there's actually meaning there what they're talking about is doing process or or, or understanding your process and committing to it so i'd say you know not to get too touchy-feely but for me (laughs) for me this story has really highlighted the importance of process in everybody's life as opposed to the outcomes at the end i think that's fantastic that we we preach it big time around here and you know, I wish that you would you take the time to write that down somewhere, do something with that idea. And it's interesting to me that you say not to be too touchy feely when you're inspired by an organization run by a McKinsey consultant and <laughs> and a NASA engineer. Essentially, that, those are the two guys. So we know that they're not touchy feely. The process, it's, like, it's all, in some ways, is the opposite of it. But it goes against the culture of sports, which is all about you know you are what your record says you are, and so uh-huh. it feels touchy feely in contrast to that. But I don't think you could say anything that would be more heartening to, to to this show than to say it's affected it's affected me outside you know outside of my it's affected my life basically the way I think about decisions in the non sports world. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, they are obviously you know scientists and hard thinkers, but they've allowed human emotion to increasingly affect them as well. You know, like over the years, I think they realized that perhaps they were just being too commanding of their players passing down this dictates from on high about what they should be doing as far as shifts and stuff. Right. Now they take a lot more time to get the players to buy in, to work with the manager, AJ Hinch, to make sure that they're understanding uh, why they're doing this. And they also bring aboard a guy like Cal- Carlos Beltran, who's 40 years old, didn't hit this much here, but everybody says that his, you know, softer influence in the clubhouse, uh, they went to win the world series either. So they've, they've evolved as well. Yeah, you know, I think the I think the field has even even Billy Bean, who's pretty extreme, and Daryl Morey, who's pretty extreme, would say that they've changed over time. That they're a little bit less beholden to the numbers and the models because they've realized that there are limits to those things. Uh, and yeah. the best, the best. I mean, the Cubs are very much of that philosophy. Mark Shapiro built the Indians very much on that philosophy. And it's hard. It's sometimes hard for analysts, hardcore analysts, and listeners of the show to realize. There's limits to the models. You got to consider the human side of things. It's it's good to hear that Luno thinks about it. Luno thinks about it down there that way. But what what's do you have do you do you have a project a journalism project in front of you that was inspired by this in any way? <laughs> we'll see. I mean, I got a lot of things going here. Uh, maybe too early to reveal. But yeah, I, I don't I don't think that this story is ending. In fact, you, you you have to keep in mind that they won this year. This is what they were going for. But they didn't go through all those torturous years in Houston for a one-and-done shot at a title. They went through all, those, all that torture to build a sustainable contender. You can't say a sustainable champion because the MLB playoffs are so randomizing and hard to get through even for the best teams, as we know. But to give themselves a real roll of the dice every October for the foreseeable future. And if you look at the way this team is constructed, uh, they're going to Oh, it's scary, it. yeah. So, Ben, it it feels like baseball kind of gets it now, and if they didn't, it's been slammed into their face with the last two World Series teams. One of the questions that I have, and I would would love to hear someone like you evangelize, is when is football going to get it? When is is hockey going to get it? Are they paying any attention to what's happening in baseball, and could they learn from Jeff Jeff and Sig about the process and do something differently? 
They certainly can, and obviously the NBA has has learned these lessons. Right, uh, NBA is going to get. You know, the NFL. I don't know. Is that a lost cause? Like, can you tell the NFL anything? Like, I don't. I'm not sure. I don't know. We don't have to get into that bad thing in the NFL. But you look at that league and, and what's happening with it right now. I'm not sure that they're paying attention to anything outside their, you know, own 32 boardrooms or whatever it is. Right, right, right. Well, listen, man. Real, ben Ryder, appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thanks, guys. It was really fun. I appreciate you having me. You bet. That was Ben Ryder, senior writer for Sports Illustrated and SI.com. He's been with the magazine since 2004. He penned the article that led to the now-famous 2014 SI cover predicting the Astros would win, accurately predicting the Astros would win the 2017 World Series. You can follow Ben on Twitter. His handle is at Ben Ryder, Ryder's R-E-I-T-E-R, R-E-I-T-E-R. That was Ben Ryder filling our second guest slot for the day. We are three-quarters of the way through Wharton Moneyball, but we still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy and faculty colleague, Shane Jensen. Sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour. Maddie Dots on the producer terminal back there. You can reach those guys and through them reach us, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or you can email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We are just off the phone with Ben Ryder, Ben, Sports Illustrated journalist who did the piece on the Astros back in 2014 that led to that now famous cover. Great fun, man. Great fun talking with Ben about the Astros and the process and choosing the cover. Amazing story how much chance was involved with that the cover ever came to life. It sounds like had the NBA playoffs gone a normal distance, they would have been on the cover. Had the NHL playoffs gone a normal distance, they'd have been on the cover. If the U.S. soccer team hadn't lost a game unexpectedly, they'd have been on the cover. All those things had happened for this great great cover to have occurred. Yeah, no, and I I mean, like, obviously one thing that I delight in taking on the conversation is is this kind of almost this impure, you know, this event that kind of backs up this – thought of like you know evaluating process over outcome mm-hmm. i mean it, it it's i guess it's just kind of nice when the outcome actually aligns with the process <laughs> occasionally we we i think this is at this is a there's a real lesson that you you can be right but about you can be right but you still need the anecdotes to break yeah. in your favor to be compelling it's you, you just you got to hope for good luck yeah you want to make the, your case you, for you you wonder this like kind of denominator out there of like all these times when the process was good and the outcome just didn't align and we just yeah. don't even think about it yeah, or, for uh, sure you know. For sure, I'm sure about it. many analysts can tell you their story about that happening. Um, one sport we haven't talked about so far this morning is college football. Shane, I know it's you're a big weekend. You're, it's hard. You don't have any capacity in that head of yours for anything outside of the Patriots. This no, time no, right that's now. not true. That's not true. I can cheer for Michigan. <laughs> why? I can't imagine why. I don't know. Some famous back, graduate. Backup famous quarter, graduate. Backup quarterback back yeah. in the you know eighties or whenever right. it was the old man played college football. But no, no. I mean, it was, I, I did. I, I, you know, I was. You know, out 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 at the bars, and I, I caught some highlights and stuff like that. I mean, I certainly saw the the Ohio State Iowa score, which I think probably took everybody by surprise. You know, I was thinking, but that's that's really, you know, everyone paid attention really to the Ohio State game because they were the favorite for the conference after having knocked out Penn State, and they just got drubbed. I mean, that's just a shocking thing. But the bigger disappointment for the season, I think, was the Penn State game because they. I think the analytics would say that Penn State should have won that game. Mm-hmm. Michigan State knocks them off. That's a big deal because Penn State would have been right in the middle of the playoff hunt. They'd, yeah. have, they'd have been the favorite then out of the Big Ten East, 
and they're a more fun team to pull for, frankly, than Urban Meyer and, and Ohio State. And they're 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 kind of fresh, and they play a great offensive game, and they've got Saquon Barkley. And for them to go down, that was a that was a pretty big hit. Now, happily, the the rest of the country is still providing lots of interesting stories. And yeah, so we so, can, so, we can live mean, without the big. Yeah, team. no, and I, well, that's right. And I mean, now it's sort of. I, I mean, we had this conversation last week about like you know what it's going to take for one of these big power five conferences to like, or or what it's going to take for you to have two teams from the same conference going into the playoff this you know things are now starting to move in that direction right i mean because the big 10 so we is out of contention i would guess now out is too strong a word but the numbers did shift obviously over the weekend and the big 10 had been the favorite one of the favorites for most of the season and now they're they're at the bottom looking up but a good question to ask is what's the probability that a team lands zero one or two teams Mm -hmm. into the playoff and you know two's never happened and so we're to predict that is to be a little bit out, you know, yep. out into places places where there's no real empirical evidence. But it looks like the SEC has a great chance based on what Georgia is doing, and Alabama obviously is doing. But even if Georgia drops the title game to Alabama, they're going to have such a great track record based on the way the committees made choices in the past. Yeah, it looks like they they would privilege Georgia, but we've never seen them make that choice. We've never seen them put a second team from a conference in there. So it's a little bit iffy to bet on it. If you look at the other conferences, two conferences that, according to Massey Peabody's projections, are favored to land a spot in the playoffs are the ACC and the Big 12, and that leaves out the Big 10 and the Pac-12. And you say they're out of it? Well, they're not really out of it. But they so like, what has to happen for the Big 10 to still, like, let's say, you know, either Penn State or Ohio State win the when the well you've already removed the possibility because their best bet by now is for wisconsin who's undefeated but hasn't played anybody right. coming out of the big 10 west haven't played i anybody. see so the only way the big 10 is going to get is going to be wisconsin going in shellacking one of one of the penn state ohio state that's the that's their best chance but the other opportunities is there's always some chance that all these one loss teams or enough of them get taken down mm-hmm. that the committee has to go into the two loss pool and once you're in the two-loss pool, it's real chaos because yeah. there are a lot of two-loss teams down there. And so that is unlikely, but mm-hmm. it's not impossible. And we've seen much crazier things happen. And so they've also got this prospect that, say, Ohio State wins the East and, say, Ohio State beats Wisconsin in the title game, and they'll be favored by at least a touchdown. Then you're looking at a two-loss Big Ten champ Ohio State team that, if enough of the one-loss teams lose, would be back in the thick of it. Right. It's just so uh, in in that sixty percent ch- or, or in that forty percent chance that uh, we still see a Big Ten team. How much of that forty percent is two lost? Te- there's enough two lost teams for Ohio State or, or Penn State to get in. Well, we can versus do that. Wisconsin. Right. right, we can do that by it. looking at Wisconsin's playoff probabilities, yeah. which we put at twenty four percent. Okay, so, so we're it's about fifty fifty of about, uh, those, those two well, things. Six, that's sixty forty or so. Yeah. It's a little bit more of the. It's a little bit more on the Wisconsin side. Okay. Uh, the other conference that really benefited from that 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 those upsets in the Big Ten is the Big Twelve because the Big Twelve been flirting with like fifty fifty some weeks just below fifty fifty and now we have them up to sixty one percent to land a team. It's gonna need it's gonna have to be unless one of these two loss things happen unless everyone's going to be Oklahoma, Oklahoma or TCU still in the mm-hmm. mix. They, they have this weird thing in the Big Twelve where they're going to play a championship game even though they don't have divisions. So these two teams are we have it something like eighty percent likely to play twice in the next three weeks. And they play this week in Norman. TCU's a big underdog there. 
Probably OU is going to win this game, but then they're going to have to beat them again in the final. So the most likely team out of the Big 12 is Oklahoma, and we do think that they're more likely that – well, we don't think that they're more likely than not. They still have them something like in the 30% percent hole. Well, so, so I mean, and they're both at one loss right now, right? Yep, yep, so, I, yep. again, for this, like, two – to knock – you know, they just have to – if they split that series, if, they're both out, they're, basically. That, in, in, or that back Probably, up, you know? yeah. probably. They're probably both – they're probably out if they split the series. And then you have the Pac-12, and the Pac-12, the Pac-12 Washington is the only one-loss team out there. No one really has much regard for what they've done so far, and so they have a harder case to make. But with they don't have to play anybody. So, you know, OU has to go through TCU. Um, Wisconsin has to go through Ohio State. Yeah. Notre, Notre Dame has to go through Miami, who Miami has to then turn around and go through Clemson. So so would, would, would Washington be the biggest beneficiary? Potential beneficiary of this like log jam at two wins. I mean, two losses, because they still would be a one loss if, team. If, right. So if you think that they're less likely to be one of those two loss teams, certainly, yeah. certainly, they're, we have them high in the pecking order. So we we talked a little bit last week about which teams control their own destiny, mm-hmm. and I caught some of that show afterwards, and I hated the way we talked about it because it was just a little bit. And we were just being a little vague. I mean, either a team controls its own destiny or not, right? I mean, yeah. there's no... We, I mean, we definitely listed more than four teams that control their own destiny for the playoffs, and that's just not the way it works, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you were trying to point that out to us, well, and we were just kind of flying through it. But we went back and looked at the numbers and said, okay, let's look at it two ways. If the team wins out, what's the probability they make the playoff? That's mm-hmm. that's really controlling your own destiny. Yes, that's if that's right. 100% or near 100%, that's what people mean by yeah. controlling their own destiny. And the numbers, the teams we have with basically 100% are Alabama, Georgia, and Miami. Okay. If you can do it. No, right behind them, Clemson and Wisconsin are right about 95%. If they went out, our models are showing, based on what the committee's done in the past, they will take those. Mm-hmm. They will take those teams. So if you want to, you want a five some with a ninety five or, or plus chance of making the playoff. If they went out and call that controlling your own destiny, that would be Alabama, Georgia, Miami, Clemson, and Wisconsin. But right. you have to couple that with how hard is it to control your own destiny? Is it some of those teams have a much easier road than others? And so fine, fine, fine. Miami controls his own destiny, but we think there's only a ten percent chance they can win out. Yeah. So that's very different from Clemson who we think practically controls their own destiny, but they have a more than 50% chance to win out. So we were kind of confounding those issues yeah. in the conversation No, and I, I mean, I think that's a great way of representing it, actually, is to sort of... Um, so, that, I mean, that still does put five teams kind of... I, five teams that, if they win out... That's right. But it just... Control be, their own destiny. Just, but, but, but we can conceive of that because it's so unlikely that all five of those teams do win out. It, it's unlikely that even four. I mean, three yeah. of those teams have a less than 20% chance of pulling it off. And Wisconsin yeah. has to go through Ohio State. Georgia has to go through Alabama. Miami has to go through both Notre Dame and Clemson mm-hmm. in the ACC title game. So it's we, we can say that about five teams because basically we, we, we can be quite certain that they're and all it, I mean, the, the one thing, this one sort of point that sticks out to me um, in, in this kind of, in, in this analysis is Notre Dame, right? Because they're currently still in the top four kind of by, yeah, by rankings, sure. right? But despite that, if they win out, you your model only has them as like even winning out only... You know, they've got about a 30%, 35% chance of winning out. 
and only like a 80 some percent chance of making the playoffs given they win out. Yeah. So that, that that 80 percent chance says that, like, you know, there's a good chance that even if they win out, they get jumped somehow. By, there's, some, there's some chance. I mean, we're, we're calling yeah. it 82 to 18 or something. So we, we still think they'd probably make the playoffs. But they're disadvantaged because they don't have a conference championship game. Yeah. So the teams that go into that conference championship on the last weekend of the year and beat another good team are going to have one more notch on their belt than the Irish do, and, Though, a, and a good case for Jeff. It's ironic, because we've, we've talked about the Big 12, about how they actually are kind of disadvantaged by having this well, championship game. Well, I think that's too, that's too neat a story. It's a, it's a, it's a variance-inducing, it's a variance-increasing yeah. prospect. And so you go into it, and if the Yeah, best, I guess that's right. If, uh, conditional on, you know, either Oklahoma or TCU winning both of these upcoming matchups, including the championship sure. game, it, it looks better for them. Yeah, so you've just got to decide. Would you rather be Oklahoma with a greater chance of winning out because you only play TCU once, but then you have to sit on the sidelines while mm-hmm. every other conference mm-hmm. plays a title game, and that's feels like that's been a disadvantage. It's pretty yeah. clear that it's been a disadvantage in the past. Or would you rather have that second hurdle, which if you clear it, you have a kind of an open-shut case yeah. for and, it to make the playoff. And, and, I mean, obviously you would prefer that second one. Under, under, this, whole, on under, under this whole control-your-own-destiny ethos or, whatever, or, or thing we're talking about, you, you would want the closest. I, yeah. I think you, as a team you would want the greatest control, control over your own destiny. You would trade off a little bit of difficulty in order yeah. to have more certainty if you got it done. That's right. That's interesting. So we have some interesting games. The college, the college slate has really improved over the last couple of weeks. Notre Dame's going to play Miami. Probably the most important game of the weekend is Notre Dame at Miami because it has so much implications mm-hmm. for, for two conferences. Your Notre little plot, your, 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 this, this whole discussion will be very, very informed That's right. by that particular game. That's right. And then TCU and Oklahoma with their first of their, what we think are going to be two matchups in the Big 12. But even at some other games. So Georgia has to go to Auburn. Both Georgia and Alabama, the huge favorites in the Big 12, the expected title contenders in the end, both have to go to Auburn in the last three weeks of the season. So Auburn has a lot to say about what's going to happen. Now they're big underdogs there, but they, you know, they're home and they're rivals, and you know, anything can happen. Washington's going to Stanford. Washington doesn't have that many hurdles left. Stanford is one of them, and they could easily drop that game in Palo Alto. That's a Friday night game. Will be fun on Friday night. And then Michigan State, fresh off their upset of uh, of Penn State. Goes to Ohio State. And Ohio State. We're going to find out whether Ohio State's like. Can Michigan State wreck the Big Twelve for yeah, everybody? Exactly. Just, yeah. <laughs> just mow everybody down. I kind of think that's going to go the other direction, but it should be a it should be a fun weekend in college football. We've only got three weeks of the regular season left, and then we've got the conference game. So we're coming down to the end of it. It it, it still could be. It still it could just tied up real you know tie up real neatly and only have four teams and it's not even hard but it could be a real mess yet it could be six or seven one loss teams the biggest chaos story is a bunch of these one loss teams lose and they have to dip into the two loss pool and that's that that's would a be big pool that, yeah. it's a big pool it would be interesting that's on the college side let's pop over to the uh let's pop over to the nfl side this time of week we like to look at the slate on the pro game Moneyball matchups. So in NFL this week, you know, dang Shane, it feels like week after week the NFL games just aren't very compelling. What do you see this weekend that you're interested in? And do you have any picks? There's 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 some good ones. I mean, again, there's there's a couple good ones. I mean, I think I still find um, 
Although it's, I, yeah, I mean, so there's a couple that probably would have been compelling <laughs> if we hadn't watched the last couple weeks. For example, Patriots at Broncos. So, I mean. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I know. I know. So um, you're just reaching. You're trying to defend Okay, the, fine. The uh, we don't have to talk about Patriots at Broncos. Yeah, I think Cal- the Broncos Cowboys will pay all the, play the Patriots tougher than we think. But anyway. Okay. Cowboys at Falcons is a really interesting looking game. Sure. So the line there is three and a half. Falcons favored by three and a half. The game is in Atlanta. Pretty, you know, pretty fancy game. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, I'm not sure. I, I would put that more at like a wall. I, I think the Cowboys are probably a good three points better than the Falcons on neutral field. So wow. I would actually kind of put that at even. Wow, wow, wow. So Massey Peabody's numbers are going to say that they're about even on okay. the neutral field. We'll give we'll give the All Cowboys right. maybe a half a point edge. And so we might have made it a two and a half point game instead of a three yeah. and a half point I game. I guess I've been kind of. You know, maybe biased a little bit by recent Cowboys performance. They've been a, little, a lot better. That's right. They've been up you know? and down this season. If you believe in non-stationarity, mm-hmm. if you're updating for that, then then you're you're optimistic. That's an interesting one to keep your eye on. So Shane likes the Cowboys. He thinks that line is too steep. Um, yeah, the points the Falcons are getting. What other games? Vikings at Redskins. I, I think will be a, a really interesting game. What do you make of the Redskins? Up for, was it? A, <sighs> is it really that big a deal to knock off the Packers whenever they don't have Rodgers? No. No, no, that that's not that impressive. But I mean, the Redskins have have been playing a lot of teams pretty tough this season. I mean, they they obviously have not been looking as impressive as the Cowboys or the Eagles. But um, I think their team, I, 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 they are always a team that I think plays tough. I, I don't think they're ever an easy victory. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, the Vikings, we don't know. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding that team as well. Because right? of the quarterback situation. Because of the quarterback situation. Yeah, I don't quite understand the line. And it's, it's really hard to say with the uh, with Yes, the because we've got on. the Vikings favored by two at, the, at the Redskins. They're on the right? road. Yeah, so that they're on the road. I wouldn't put the Vikings two, as so. five-point favorites over the Redskins on a neutral field. I think that's a little misaligned. That's too high, right? Yeah. That, that line yeah. suggests that they're five on a neutral field. We think it's like 1.7 on a neutral field. So that right. looks like you might have an edge there. Subject to... What you do with the Minnesota quarterback situation? Yeah. So, for example, if Bridgewater's back and you're ready to bet on him already, yeah. Though I don't think I, I, I'm pretty sure Bridgewater's not, not playing in this. Active this, but not playing. Yeah. Is that the situation? All I right. believe so. So I, I don't know. This that looks a little fishy to me. Minnesota's had a good season, but Washington is outplaying their record so far. All right. What else you got, Shane? Saints Bills will be kind of interesting. I think. You know, Bills have had so much attention lately. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, they you know they they're hanging tough in, in in a division where no team was expected to hang tough. Yeah, right. Um, you know, I I don't th- I think the Saints are gonna. I, I I'm a little surprised that the Bills are favored in this one, even though they are at home. Yeah. Um. So the line is two, which yeah. suggests that the Saints are only one point better than the Bills on a neutral field. Yeah, and I and I don't think that's, that's right. surprising. Yeah, I think the Saints are better than that. I mean, you know, it's it's again. May, may, maybe Vegas is like me and that they're just still getting used to the Saints being good. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, um, but you know, and I mean, certainly it'll be interesting to watch because I think, you know, the Bills have an amazing defense and will be a real challenge for Breeze. All but, right. Um, well, know. look, this is one, this is, I mean, look, I, I haven't crushed all the numbers here, but at the, looking at power rankings, we would make New Orleans you know, seven or eight points better. Wow, on a neutral field. So that looks like. Oh, a pretty... you guys, you guys have bought into New Orleans. Well, and we're not buying the Bills. We've yeah. been short. One of the teams that we're most short on this year, and we may be missing something. But you know, every year there's some team that we like better than everyone else does, and we just can't get over our crush. And some teams that we just have attitude about, and we can't, and we can't ever learn to love. The Bills seem to be that team for us this year. Mm-hmm. That we just don't believe in them. I mean, we have them something like twenty third in the league. 
We think they're two yeah. and a half points worse than the average team. Look, that, that's how much. We would take Cincinnati by two and a half on a neutral field. That's how little we believe in the Bills. Wow. Wow. Are they still, um, even with that, they're still the second. You do have them as the second best team in the NFC East, I would guess, right? Well, we can look at that. Just barely, quick, but, but yeah, I the, think so. I think I see it up there. Yeah. Well, and they've got, you know, because they've played well so far, they're in the playoff hunt in a big way. It doesn't matter that you're the 23rd team if you're winning more of your games, and we still have them something like 35%. Yeah, that to make wild, the actually, looking at the AFC. The AFC in general, that wild card race is wide open. There are not a lot of teams kind of differentiating themselves. I mean, we, I mean, to a certain extent, the divisions are pretty differentiated, right? We're pretty sure who's, you know, got, you know, who's got sort of like New a New England's going to win the East ninety percent. Pittsburgh's right. going to win the North ninety three percent. KC's going to win the West eighty six percent. Some teams going to win the AFC South by some, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, they're not going anywhere. Right. But you're right that on the wild card side, I mean, all these teams, this is the NFL this year. These are scrunched together. How can you differentiate Buffalo from Baltimore, from Tennessee, from Denver? Yeah. I mean, they're just they're just real close. Even I mean, Houston before they lost their quarterback, Cincinnati's still nibbling around a little bit. Miami started out well. I mean, really, maybe that's what you're paying attention to in the, in the AFC because there's so little else. All right, man. So what are the – anything else on the NFL side? Oh man, did we, did we, I, I think we I think we, I think we got it. I think we mind it. I think uh, I think you that's know. you know that's a better. I'd say that's I a Seahawks at Cardinals might be interesting actually. You know, I I mean I think I mean again I would favor the Seahawks and probably substantially, um, but you know the Cardinals are another team that week to week you know they've they've looked really good. They beat the Cowboys earlier this, or almost beat that. They didn't actually beat the Cowboys, but they they played tough against the Cowboys earlier this season. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they've also look terrible. So I don't. I don't know. I don't know what to make of them. But you know, Seattle is, is the same thing. They're up and down. This is the time of year where Seattle usually starts right turning it on. Yeah, that's right. I know it's just a narrative, and I know that there's no real you know. causal mechanism. But you know, Seattle. The last few years, they were dominant a couple of years ago. But the last couple of years, we always doubt them, and then they start pouring it on. They start yeah. taking it seriously. And I, I, you know, that line in Arizona is five and a half. Seattle by five and a half, which suggests that the Seahawks are about. Eight and a half points better. Is that what field. you kind of would And we say? have them at about right. eight points okay. better. So we think that right. for our money, for the Massey Peabody money, that's going to be about spot on. So I guess we're saying bet on the Redskins of all of them. Of the, well, we like the the Massey Peabody would say would say Saints as well. Mm-hmm. We, but you you may look at we've been kind of underestimating the Buffalo Bills all year long, and so you might be a little scared about doing yeah. that. Yeah, but that's the biggest edge. The biggest edge we see on the board this week is New Orleans. Um, hosting, no, going to Buffalo. You know, you know what it might be. People doubt Drew Brees in the North. There's this, yeah. there's this whole story about he gets to play in yeah. the dome, and the North isn't what it used to be, man. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, we're, it's it's kind of tempered up here now. That's true. And that's I true. mean, Buffalo, I've, I haven't actually been to Buffalo lately. It might still be really wintry up there. Well, let's know. see. It's got, you've got me interested in the NFL slate this week, Shane. I appreciate that. All right, man. That is another. Two hours of Wharton Money while we do this every fun. Wednesday has been fun. That's Shane Jensen there. Thank you from he and uh, this is Cade hosting and, and from Eric and Adi who aren't in this week but are here in spirit from Danielle Bruno. And thanks to Danielle Bruno for her work as sound engineer Matt Dots, producer who runs the show and keeps this thing going. Couldn't do it without him. Appreciate your listening. Come back and join us next week. We'll do it again live next Wednesday 8 to 10. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. <laughs>